0: Hello and welcome to On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies here in Sydney. I'm Glenn Fay, your host for today's episode, filling in for our regular host, Salvatore Babonis. Joining me on today's episode is Jack Maguire. He's the managing director of the Red Union Group, largely representing teachers and nurses. Jack, welcome to the CIS.
1: Thanks for having me, Glenn.
0: So to walk, walk us through. What's, what's the Red Union Group? What, who are you representing and why?
1: So the Red Union uh, Group is a service provider that provides services to a number of uh, independent unions. Um, the first of the independent unions sprung up about 10 years ago for nurses in Queensland um, off the back of, uh, I guess, an unhappiness with the uh, Bly payroll bungle Um, which we're still servicing people um, off the back of that. And that was, you know, over a decade ago. Um, And those nurses being uneasy with the Queensland Nurses Union being affiliated with the Labor Party at the time. And um, so uh, I guess Graham uh, helped those nurses set up an alternative independent union um, at half the price um, and with with a prohibition um, on providing any financial or in-kind support to political parties. Um, uh, which then went for many years um, successfully. Uh, we then had a group of teachers approach us. Um, and I guess because our service provision to these unions was centralised, it reduces the barrier to entry for setting up a new union. So now we've got a, a doctor's union, a police union, a driver's union, an independent worker's union, um, and the list goes on.
0: So in what ways is uh, is that network different to the the traditional offerings available to to members?
1: So we uh, obviously have no ties to political parties, Uh, constitutionally prohibited from having ties to political parties. Um, The other unions very often are affiliated um, to a political party. Um, There is uh, also, um, you know, the other unions are twice twice the price, bloated staff. Um, uh, They are registered organisations. They do get a... um, a slight legislative advantage over our independent unions. um, Although I say we try harder, so we certainly more than make up for that. Um, But ultimately it goes back to um, the Gough Whitlam um, International Labour Organization conventions that they brought in. And there's sort of a three-tiered approach to unionism in Australia. The sort of trade union, which is very, very broad um, uh, and covers everyone as per the ILO provisions and there's sort of an industrial association um, which then carries with it a little bit of regulation and a little bit of standard you meet. Also, you know, punishes executive for taking unlawful industrial action, uh, et cetera. And then you've got a registered organisation, which again is um, above and beyond that, which allows you to sort of, I guess, transgress property rights, have a right of entry, um, automatic seat at the bargaining table so you can sit and negotiate wages without ever having to talk to a member. Whereas if we want to negotiate on wages, we have to be appointed individually individually. Um, On mass by you know thousands of members, so at least we have to have a conversation with them. Which I guess then philosophically, then the main difference I suppose is um, with a registered organisation, one of these traditional unions, they are very very focused on the collective. And if your view is not in line with the collective, you're silenced. Um, Whereas I guess with our um, unions, we believe in you know have a more of a slant towards individualism, but on a you know on on a mass collective basis, if that makes sense.
0: Well, I suppose it's a, it's, a, it's an intriguing kind of idea, isn't it? You know, so it, it, it it's almost suggesting it's more kind of bottom up collective, you know, sort of a collection of individuals rather than a collective that all individuals need to kind of align to that's arbitrarily set.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, um, for instance, when it comes to bargaining and you have a log of claims and you put that to an employer, um, you know, we will put everyone's view forward because even if they are slightly conflicting or different, um, but we say, you know, how many members feel this way and ultimately you need 50% plus one of the workforce to get a, an agreement up. So, um, yeah, all about the individual. We got in, in trouble with the media um, over the mandates because we said that, you know, uh, someone pays us money, as service, dues, et cetera, we'll, you know, look after them. And for that, we were called anti-vaxxers, um, even though we were helping those Um, We wanted to get vaccinated, get vaccinated earlier, et cetera. We're playing, again, both sides based on what the individual wanted. But, um, you know, because we didn't have a collective view that was, you know, one particular thing and that meant that we were, you know, evil.
0: So what other sorts of issues? So if you talk about, you know, that if the the very large registered organisations have got a series of limitations or are unresponsive to the needs of members, whether it's teachers, nurses, what are the sorts of things that they're failing to represent members
1: on? Well, I guess, ultimately, it's it's more of a concern with public sector unions, um, and we have found that over the course of our geez, 10 years of operating, um, there certainly seems to be um, a reluctance from registered organisations from uh, being too aggressive or loud or highlighting issues um, when they're you know, particular persuasion uh, is in uh, government and sitting in the ministerial seats. So uh, whereas, you know, we don't pull a punch um, regardless of who's in there, but we've often found that, you know, at a state level in particular, there's been long periods of Labor governments and, uh, you know, there's plenty of issues just by having, I guess, a long period of any government, um, you know, there seems to be rot that sets in and there needs to be, um, you know, sunlight shone on those because, you know, the media do have a... Um, a role to play in trying to disinfect some of these things. And, um, you know, the only way you get a politician to act is to hit them over the head with votes.
0: as far as the, you mentioned the, the uh, private sector representation. Is there a sense that in the current environment that there's too much of an antagonism at times between the role, the, 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 the position that some, that unions in the private sector take, and particularly small business?
1: Yeah, good point, Glenn. Um, we uh, have, you know, no um, great qualms with bosses generally. I know there's a lot of unions that saber rattle against bosses. But, you know, ultimately, I think, you um, know, private uh, enterprise, um, employees and employers want a harmonious workplace, um, you know, bosses don't want to antagonize and have um, a battle every day they go to work with their staff generally of course there are the outliers but uh, generally they want to harmonious workplace everyone pulling in the same direction so that the organization's growing a growing organization means there's more room for wage growth etc. Um, uh, we have found uh, again you know when when we stepped into the place that uh, there had been lingering issues that would be used to you know by registered organizations and these monopol- former monopoly unions, um to sort of again there'd be maybe an issue a minor issue with the boss um they'd point at that um and then they would not really take any steps to fix it but they would use that as a membership drive and say oh look how bad this issue is um i guess we're we're happy to step in resolve the issue quickly um if it needs to be litigated because it's you know that bad we'll litigate quickly fix the problem and again you know get everyone back to work and move on with their life
0: and it sort of taps into that, that some perhaps some unions are in Kind of a, a mindset that's from well into the past, uh, that industrial dispute model that was very kind of antagonistic. That you know, that, you know, you, I suppose characterized by a kind of warfy disputes. You know, that that kind of um, that that kind in of us, really us antagonistic environment that mm. probably doesn't really reflect many workplaces today.
1: No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't think there is an us versus them uh, mentality in the workplace in Australia. Uh, and as I said. Um, employers want employees to be pulling in the same direction because ultimately if businesses grow and become more productive and usually you need to have happy staff for them to become more productive um then there's more room for you know the employer to make money the business to make money to invest to expand to you know have a um again more money for wage growth for the employees that are currently there
0: well, perhaps an the area where it's maybe less antagonistic maybe it, it Possibly too comfortable might be the the relationship between some of the very large unions and some very large employers. In what ways does that interrupt the needs of workers?
1: Oh, we've certainly seen that. Um, even if you have a look at the, um, it was all played out in the uh, Fair Work Commission, the Coles SDA agreement that they had, where um, you know penalty rates were essentially flattened in return for a pseudo closed shop, you know, it wasn't mandatory to be in the union, but the union had sort of unprecedented access to employees. And um, I remember I was working in the deli um, back in grade nine or 10. And, you know, the, the weight was certainly put on you uh, at Coles. You had to join the SDA, even though I think I was on $9 an hour and the union membership was 5 or $6. So it's, um, when you're not getting many hours, it's quite a big portion. But um, so, yeah, absolutely. There is, you know, and, and we have concerns too um, that, that similar arrangement may be on the cards again um, where you can have big employers, um, say like, you know, Jennifer Westacott um, representing big employers and um, some of those uh, registered organisations in the private sector getting together around a table, uh, cooking up a deal that then pays workers less A and B gives them a competitive labour advantage over small mum and dad businesses um, who generally treat their workers better anyway. So, um, you know, it's sort of, worst of all worlds from our point of view
0: and is that the is that the impression out of the jobs and skills summit that that took place recently that that there's a I mean kind of a comfortable relationship reached between the big employers and big unions
1: oh absolutely i mean we saw this uh, first play out uh with the ir omnibus bill that christian porter was trying to push um and then failed thankfully um part of that bill was also going to try and lock us out um so uh again that was a a Um, put forward by the ACTU um, to try and target the retail and fast food workers union in Victoria, because, you know, they're lawless and crazy and out of control and need to be stopped. Um, But I guess the real target was probably us, because I think we're some some orders orders of magnitude bigger than them. Um, But those very same principles um, are now almost exactly uh, what was going to be put in the IR Omnibus Bill, which again was big business uh, representatives sitting around a table with big unions cooking up deals. Um, almost everything that was in that um, proposed in the IR Omnibus Bill is going to be put forward in um, legislation post this Jobs and Skills Summit, which again was big businesses sitting around a table with big unions. Um, I even wrote an email saying I'm more than happy to attend. Mm-hmm. Um, they said it was invite only. I wasn't. I wasn't welcome, which uh, isn't nice. But you know, we represent 17,000 members, and and you know they have industrial interests that would want to be heard as well. But obviously, we don't get a we don't get uh, the same say as. Um, those with a cosy relationship with the government.
0: Well, sadly, I didn't get an invite either, but probably more significantly, I can, one of the probably biggest em, em, emissions from, from that was the Productivity Commission. <laughs> and you think about, you know, at the heart of many industrial decisions and, and determinations is the productivity dividend and, and, and that question. So a very puzzling decision, that one. So you've touched upon this, this issue of anti-competitiveness when it comes to... The union sector and the opportunities for members to seek representation. In what ways do we have a mono- almost monopoly system?
1: So, uh, as I was sort of saying before, the there are registered organisations and the uh, legislative provisions in order to register register uh, outline those monopoly provisions. So, um, you have to take you know eight or nine steps, and the tenth step uh, is that. If you can already conveniently belong to a registered organisation, then you can't register your own organisation. Um, so spells out the monopoly. Um, it's interesting we've seen in Queensland though, but but, but uh, sorry, in order to get around that, um, uh, we had a barrister that we used to brief that um, was in Cabinet for the Labor uh, government when they brought it with Julia Gillard when they brought in the um, Fair Work Act. And uh, having those... Um, uh, restrictions, one union only, um, contravenes the ILO. Um, the ILO, I think, Article 2, Freedom of Association, workers and employers without distinction whatsoever shall have the right to establish uh, and to join organisations of their own choosing without previous authorization uh, And then it goes on to say that, you know, you, you really can't regulate what a trade union is. So they had sort of a separate act where you did regulate what a trade union is but gave them extra it was sort of an opt-in process. If you'd like these, you get extra treats, but we will regulate you. Um, whereas, um, you know, in Australia, then we had industrial associations, trade unions, etc., which could operate separately. But um, what we have found, because um, I mean, if you just think about the numbers, I mean, we got about 17,000 members times by 440 odd, I think is how, many, um, how much we charge a year. On average, uh, you know, we're turning over something like, you know, $6.5 million a year, that's double that for the other, for the registered organisations. It's $13 million per annum that they're losing. Um, they're really not happy with us existing and competing against them. Um, and now they've marshalled the state um, uh, Palaszczuk government to move against us and change the laws uh, to try and outlaw, well, to try and make it a lot more difficult to do what we do for nurses and teachers in Queensland.
0: So that's a sort of puzzling development, mm-hmm. isn't it, that a Queensland Labor government appears to be acting to restrict the activities and association of workers into a trade union.
1: They they acknowledge uh, that it restricts their rights, their human rights. They brought in the Human Rights Act in 2019, which um, uh, Queenslanders now have a human right to form and join uh, trade unions. Um, but this ultimately uh, impinges on that human right. They acknowledge that, but they don't care. They just do not want us to exist. So um, they changed the registration rules to make it even harder to register. They looked at our structure and said, well, your structure, we can't have that, so you're now barred from registering. Um, And then uh, further, there's going to be, you know, the ability for ancillary orders to, you know, prevent us from representing people in the QRC, arranging an agent for people to represent people in the QRC, removing historic protections for industrial associations, that sort of tier two union I was talking about, um, which has been around since the Goff days. So seriously, it's a it's a government uh without precedent in terms of trashing work workers rights and workplace rights um and i guess you know the only way that i can reconcile it is if you follow the money um and you know you've got certain um, people in government even i think grace grace was uh employed by the queensland nurses union during her years out of government um, you've got you know, a member of parliament who is still a member of the Queensland Nurses Union. Um, so there's there's a there's sort of a, a lot of obviously Labor members who are members of these registered organisations. So it just seems a little bit like there's a well a little bit a lot bit like there's a massive conflict of interest, I would say, um, in having these union members in parliament uh, trying to outlaw as best they can independent unions to try and force those members back into, you know, I guess Labor-aligned unions who then prop up election campaigns and help help them, you know, rinse and repeat.
0: Staying on Queensland government, uh, a particular education department activity recently, one of the one of the recent developments was that uh, some teachers were were looking to suffer a pay cut compared to their peers Uh, in in an industry where whenever we try to talk about differential pay, particularly as a motivator for recognition of highly effective outcomes, we're told it's it's beyond the pale to consider differential pay arrangements. And yet there seems to be a differential pay arrangement on the basis of health status. How did we land in that situation?
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, the the union movement forever have been talking about same pay for the same job. Um, You know, it's an interesting precedent for a Labor minister to set. Um, You know, I'd be interested to know whether she would also agree with a private sector employer docking pay of, Staff um, for you know not following orders, um, but yeah no we that that was an outrageous example of why you need a second union. Um, the other union was very silent on that issue where you know teachers had been penalised a second time, sometimes a third time. Um, we had teachers out who were in state-owned uh, housing renting uh, were kicked out of their rentals uh, for not complying with mandates, and then uh, were forced to pay rent while they weren't allowed in their house. So. Just craziness
0: so uh, we, it, I think one of the one of the differentiating markers of particularly the, the, the Teachers Professional Association in Queensland where there's a clear distinction with the Queensland Teachers Union has been on the handling of NAPLAN um, mm. uh, the Queensland Teachers Union has had a long running campaign uh, against the test and trying to scrap the test for, for a range of reasons um, and even put a, a ban or attempted to put a ban on members, uh are preparing students for the assessment even though it's an important marker of core literacy and numeracy which seems uh, something that of course everyone thinks is an important work of educators mm-hmm. how did you arrive at a different conclusion to where the QTU landed
1: well I guess uh, it's interesting our our members I would say skew towards being high quality teachers um, and I don't think I'm biased in saying that and I think um, one of the main reasons the queensland teachers union um don't like uh naplan is because they believe that it could be used to highlight underperforming teachers um ultimately it isn't um, but i guess you know we don't see any problem with having um you know better pay for higher performing teachers because again i would say that most of our members are in that category of higher performing teachers um, Again, highlights the reason why there needs to be a second voice in the in the market. Um, you can't have a contest of ideas or a battle of ideas with one union, particularly when one union uh, has this fierce collective uh, mentality. Where you know, if you are part of the forty nine percent, not the fifty one percent, you're totally silenced. So, having us even play in that space um, and talk about this naplan, um, you know, ultimately our teachers thought that it was a, a good idea. It was. NAPLAN's not without its faults, but it is a good idea to have standardised testing um, to try and highlight where weaknesses are in funding to be able to prop up, um, you know, suburbs or schools that are struggling, um, who may need more resources. Uh, and I guess just as a um, an ongoing test to see whether the school is on the improve or on the decline. And, you know, there's a lot of data that can be taken from it.
0: Well, not least of which many teachers are, are also parents, and it's an important information tool for parents to understand and, and make Remediation for their own children's needs,
1: and and, and good point because I was going to say that's part of our manifesto is the t- uh, well part of the TPAQs manifesto, um, where we differ significantly, and we say that the the main client of uh, the teacher is the student and the parent. Yeah. Um, I think that if you were to ask the same question of the Queensland Teachers Union, or the way that it is, certainly they have allowed it to develop, the main client of the um, of the teacher is now the department. And it's doing what the department says, department's bidding, and they are, you know, in fact, the people that you must appease. Whereas I believe, um, and the TPAQ believes, it should be the, um, you know, the getting a better outcome for that kid. And that kid also, you know, has input from parents.
0: It also seems that over the last 10, 15 years, there's been an increasing problem or challenge facing new teachers and new nurses about being underprepared for for the work that they find themselves. So even though they might have been asked to do additional study than they have in the past and so on, they seem less prepared. And, and that you see that in all kinds of surveys and different kinds of placement uh, uh, approaches that have taken. They don't seem to be actually serving the, the, the need of the, that new teacher and new nurse. But I haven't heard unions necessarily be that constructive in proposing solutions to that challenge.
1: No, it's it's interesting that you touch on that because one of the the main flagship cases that we still have before the commission two years later it's still going um, was over one of our nurses who's now a president Mark Gilbert um, speaking out about the underpreparedness and the the um, failure of universities to uh, adequately train nurses for the workplace. You know. Um, uh, never done, you know, skills like inserting a catheter or cannulation or, you know, things that are basic requirements of sort of the job of nursing. Um, and for that, they were targeted, uh, for that she was targeted by Queensland Health and, you know, tried to be punished and we've had to defend her. So um, a lot of those people that were trying to punish Marg, we found out were from the union. So um, uh, just high up, higher up in management. So um, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, we are absolutely, Absolutely focused on trying to improve, um, you know, the profession, making people job ready. We have outreach programs into school, uh, to universities, uh, getting people on board er- earlier, and and doing sort of sort of mentor programs where we have uh, people from the profession trying to help those um, in universities. So there is quite a lot of a value for a university student to to get involved in here from. You know real-life working professionals about what's required but yeah no I've, absolutely i have no idea why they wouldn't um why the registered organizations wouldn't do the same perhaps there's never really been an impetus for them to be proactive and to come up with these sort of things because if you're the only kid on the block uh, or the only supermarket on the block everyone's got to shop from you so
0: quite right we're almost out of time but i uh, wanted to ask you a final question i During a a recent Google search, it became apparent to me that you drew the ire of another opponent, uh, and that's the Communist Party of Australia, who (laughs) seemed to take offence that you had labelled yourself the Red Union uh, and applied a warning notice to its members not to be fooled into um, joining a fake union. Are you a fake union and does the communist party of australia own the color red
1: <laughs> um no we're certainly not a fake union goodness we've got seventeen thousand members and collect resources to to fight battles against you know some of the biggest employers in the country being the states so uh no i don't know i don't see how that's a fake union at all um particularly when we spend so much money on um defending members interests but yeah color red gosh um I <laughs> Some, sometimes I wish we didn't choose the colour red because we often get people uh, confusing us for the Communist Party and we certainly don't hold ourselves out to be the Communist Party and would, uh, you know, <laughs> be uh, seriously worried if people thought that we were communists because it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, ultimately, the the story is a lot more banal. It's just, um, you know, the NPAQ when it started out um, chose a colour red for its logo and then the TPAQ followed suit and, you know, all of a sudden, I guess... Um, now Colgate, uh, Coca-Cola, and the Red Unions are all communists.
0: Uh, the, 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 uh, the conspiracy is bigger than they thought, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jack, thanks for being part of On Liberty. Pleasure to having you.
1: No, thanks, Glenn. Appreciate it.
0: And that was episode 99 of On Liberty. Join us again in a fortnight's time for episode 100, where my colleague Tom Switzer interviews our regular host, Salvatore Babonis. Hope to see you again then.